There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. Notice how I changed my inflection there, Greg? That Welcome was, back. That was different. I think people are going to notice that. I noticed it. So we're on episode three of our Back to Basics mini-series. And last week we talked about stock picking and market timing. And Greg, recent market movements actually show how difficult this is. Remember back on July 19th when the Dow Jones sold off 2% or roughly 1,000 points at one point? Yeah. I'm sure it created some panic out there, but the next day the market rallied something around 2% back, which I guess this just highlights how difficult it would be to time those events. It's pretty volatile. Now, the other thing too, of course, is everyone gets all in a knot. Oh my God, it's 800 or 1,000 points. But that's when the Dow Jones is trading at what, 35,000-ish. Just think back in the old days when the Dow was trading at 10,000, it didn't seem like that big a number. The market didn't have to go down too many points for it to be 2%. These large numbers make you feel worse than you probably need to. Well, I remember that day. It was the House of Representatives voted down the bailout package of the global financial crisis. 2008. And the Dow was around, I don't know, 11,000 points or something. And it went down 1,200 points at the open. That's a way different number than 1,000 points on 35,000. Exactly. Yes, I remember that day. That was not fun. No. I think we turned the channel that day. We didn't actually watch some of the carnage. No, that's carnage. right. Yeah. Soaps. We watch soaps. Yeah. <laughs> but this week, we're going to talk about factors of return. And we spent a lot of time in previous episodes going through this stuff. But as this is a back to basics mini series, we wanted to use this as a refresher. And we did a webinar back in June discussing health and wealth. And lots of the material that we're going to cover today was in that recorded webinar. So if anyone wants to watch it, please send us a note and we'll forward out the link. Right on. So to get us started, Greg, we got a song. I've heard of this band. They're an up-and-comer. They're an up-and-comer. I wonder if it makes you feel all right when the Dow goes down a thousand points. Yeah. (laughs) Well, let's get into that. We're talking about the Dow and the S&P 500, things like that. So Greg, let's get into what is the stock market? I think that's probably a good place to kick off from. Listen, everyone listening, I'm sure, has some point watched BNN or CNBC or something like that, and have seen the closing numbers, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the S&P 500, the TSX, those kind of things. And as we've talked, I mean, previously, these are all just representations or benchmarks of the markets. And in most cases, they're a small part of the markets themselves, but they're meant to be representative. So the one that gets the most attention is the Dow Jones, despite the fact the Dow Jones has only 30 components. It's the 30 largest companies, industrial companies originally, it was the Dow Jones Industrial Average, but 30 of the largest companies that trade in the U.S. stock markets. So 30 names, so it's really not that representative of the whole market. And certainly, it's a market of large companies. If you move down then to the S&P 500, those would be the 500 largest companies that trade in the U.S. market, which 
also seems like a lot, certainly more diversified than the Dow Jones 30. But every day, there's actually about 3,600 publicly listed companies that trade on the different exchanges in the U.S. alone. Say that again, 3,600. That's 3,600 companies. Yet everybody always quotes the Dow 30. Exactly. Or the S&P 500, for that matter. So it's really a very small proportion. And of course, that doesn't actually include private companies, companies that trade over the counter or that aren't listed on an exchange. So just as review, I mean, the stock market itself is an auction market where buyers and sellers, they meet and agree on a price. And so for a trade to happen, you actually have to accomplish a buyer and a seller agreeing on a price. Sometimes you'll hear a day like the 19th, when the markets were down 800 or so points, people will say something like, oh, there was more sellers than buyers. And obviously that's not true. Can you explain why? Well, there's got to be a buyer for every seller. So if somebody is out there selling their stock, in order for a transaction to occur, there has to be somebody willing to buy that stock from them. What probably is true is that there are more people eager to sell than there are people eager to buy. And I think that maybe is more descriptive of how things happen, because the more people that are eager to sell, they might be willing to sell at any price, whereas the buyers might be very specific about the price they're willing to pay. So one side is just more motivated than the other side. But as you say, it's just math. You have to have one for one. You have to have a buyer for every seller or there's no trade. Exactly. So one of the things we should cover off too is just looking at the size of the stock markets as a whole. Because when we look at some of the details on geography of the global stock markets, it's a big world. And in fact, when you look at the representation of each country as a part of the global stock market. So if you consider all the stocks that possibly trade on exchanges around the world, then we can look at each country and see what they represent. And in the case of Canada, turns out Canada represents only 3% of the global stock market, whereas the U.S. represents over 50%. I think it's close to 54 right now, given how strong the returns have been in the U.S. stock market. So when something catastrophic happens in the U.S., like what we went through with the global credit crisis, starting with the horrible mortgages that were being issued in the U.S. and then, of course, leading to a much broader crisis, you can see how that has a pretty big impact given the size of the U.S. market. So when people talk about the market, wouldn't it be better to actually be talking about the global stock market versus the TSX or the Dow Jones or whatever? I think it probably would be. And I think part of the issue there is just it's people probably can't relate to it. Like the benchmark MSCI, which is the Morgan Stanley Capital International Index of the world stocks, it's not something that people are familiar with. And so they don't know whether the current level is high or low or how to compare that. So unfortunately, people just sort of gravitate towards the indexes that they're more familiar with. So if you're investing in Canada, the TSX Composite or the TSX 60 index. And if you're investing in the US, it'll either be the Dow Jones 30 or the S&P 500. Years ago, I had somebody come in and they were quite upset. They said the market is just down so much. And when they were describing this, global stock markets were actually rallying. And I said, well, which market? And they said, well, oil. Oil's down. I didn't realize oil was the market, Greg. Exactly. So to your point, which market are we talking about here? That's right. Not only is it important to understand what exactly we're referring to or what people are referring to when they talk about how the market is doing, but to really understand that there's a lot going on outside of those particular indexes that we're going to be talking about. I just wanted to mention too, when we're talking about the importance of different countries as part of the overall market, 
one of the ones we hear a lot about is China, some of the emerging markets, China, Brazil, Russia, that kind of thing. China right now only makes up 3% of the world stock market. A lot of people are still interested in investing in China, and I'm not sure if that's going to change a little bit over the next little while, given what's going on politically. And the fact that, as we keep pointing out on our podcast, is China still is a communist country. They're trying to behave or act like capitalists, but there's a lot of reasons why shares of Chinese companies you may want to be careful with. And certainly anyone that wants to capitalize on growth in China or India or any other places is best to look at some sort of funds or broader way to invest in those types of companies. It's kind of a paradox, isn't it, to have like a capitalist slant on a communist economy? Exactly. And I'm not sure in the end that it can work. And a lot of it comes down to governance, because part of the thing that makes investing in the US and Canada a little bit less risky is just the fact that there are certain requirements for listing. The company's financials have to be audited carefully and by using a respected or respectable audit firm. And some of those things don't apply necessarily in Chinese companies. Anyway, off the topic a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> let's talk a little bit about how big the markets are. So we talked about the fact that the U.S. represents 54% of the global stock market. So what is that in dollars? Well, in dollars, that's about $70 trillion. Say that again. That's $70 trillion. $70 trillion U.S. dollars. That's right. That's crazy. So Canada, again, representing only 3% of that, but I guess still a fairly big number when you're talking about $70 trillion of market capitalization. Now, they're talking about how some of the large cap companies like Apple may be the first $1 trillion market yes. cap company. Hard to believe. Now, Greg, are we suggesting people invest in Apple? Not specifically, no. Well, they could. Yes, of course. I mean, you have Apple products, don't sure, you? Sure, sure. <laughs> I've invested in many Apple iPhones, computers, laptops. I don't know if that's investing or spend. <laughs> that's spending, not investing. Yeah, there's no return expected on those. <laughs> anyway, as we talked about a little bit, the size of the global stock markets, that Canada itself is a relatively small part, as are certain other countries, like some of the emerging markets countries like India and China. But even like Australia is 3% or that's something right. like that. So again, just... And we've been banging people over the head with this point, but just make sure that you're diversified outside of some of these small countries. So that's stocks, but what about the bond markets? What about the bond market? The market that nobody talks about? Because there's two main ways for companies or countries for that matter to raise capital, and that is through issuing stock or by issuing bonds. And bonds essentially are loans. We don't have time to get into the intricate details of the bond market today, but Let's just say that not all bonds are created equal. So when we have somebody that says, well, I can get a government of Venezuela bond that is going to pay me 10 or 12% versus a government of Canada bond that's going to pay me, I don't know, 1.5%. There's a difference in those bonds. Exactly. So the power of the bond market, though, is massive. So if the stock market was worth over 70 trillion US dollars, the bond market is worth approximately 130 trillion US dollars. Say that again. That's a bigger number, Greg. That's almost double. So 130 trillion dollars. Yet nobody talks about the bond market. And you got to ask why is that? So I'm asking you, Greg, why don't people talk about the bond market? Like all they ever talk about when you turn on the news is the Dow Jones is this, the TSX is that, the price of oil is here, the Canadian dollar is worth this. But nobody really talks about the bond market. Yeah, it's not exciting. And it's harder to relate to because the bond market is so much less volatile than the stock market. People talk about the bond market around the edges. So they'll talk about inflation and they'll talk about interest rates. 
and they'll make general comments. Oh, interest rates could be going up. That could be bad for bonds. But nobody knows what that means. It sounds smart, though. Yeah. When you say, gee, something could be bad for stocks, you envision stocks going down 20%. If something's bad for bonds, maybe they'll go down a couple of percent, maybe three, maybe four. But they're just so much less volatile that it just doesn't make for interesting commentary on the business news. Well, a few weeks ago, the U.S. 10-year Treasury moved from 1.45 to 1.6, and that caused a big uproar. (laughs) But it's like 15 basis points. It may even be a big number in bond world, but in stock world, it's barely a blip. It's less than what happened in the stock market last week. But that power of the bond market can't be discounted. I mean, it's literally led to the end of wars. It's just a huge market. And the difference is that it's not an auction market. So buyers and sellers aren't meeting on a centralized exchange to trade bonds. Bonds are primarily traded between institutional bond desks. So finding out the true price of a bond would be very difficult for a retail investor to get to. Because it's, as we said, it's never reported. (laughs) Actually, that's not true. Recently, it has been because that U.S. 10-year treasury, it got up to like close to two, I think a week ago, and then it fell to 1.18 or something like that within a few days. The bond market has been puzzling people because everyone's been so concerned about inflation and yet interest rates, as measured by the U.S. 10-year government bond or the Canadian 10-year government bond, the interest rates on those or the yields have actually been going down. But it's not sexy. Nobody's talking about how they picked up 40 basis points over the U.S. 10-year treasury on a trade. So, Greg, instead, what do we hear about these days? We hear about things like, and we've talked about these in the past, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Dogecoin. Last year, it was weed stocks. This year, this last 12 months, it's been short squeezes on companies like AMC Theaters, GameStop. One of them you and I looked at the other day, Dillard's. I didn't realize Dillard's stock was up like, I can't remember hundreds of percent in the last year. And you've got these people bragging about how they have diamond hands on this Reddit Wall Street Bets forum. And diamond hands, for those that don't know, means they hold the stock and they're not going to sell it no matter what. That's diamond hands. It doesn't really sound like investing, but it sounds like collecting. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, exactly. Paper hands is if you give in and sell the stock. Now, so let's be clear, there's investing and there's speculating or gambling. And when you're participating in a short squeeze with your diamond hands, this isn't necessarily investing. It is probably speculation at its best. So being part of something like Dogecoin isn't investing. Greg, did you know that Dogecoin was created as a hoax? I heard that, yeah. And then a bunch of celebrities got on board and now it's worth money somehow. But there's no intrinsic value to it. Anything can be worth money if people are willing to pay for it. The problem is linked to the consequences of investing in something that you don't really understand and not understanding what the potential outcomes could be. So that's an issue. Well, now let's get into, so we know what the size of the markets is. We know the markets are huge, $70 trillion minimum, possibly more by now. And so since stock markets were first created, basically investors have been looking to crack the code. And what I mean by crack the code is like find that magic formula that allows them to predict what's going to happen in the future with stock prices based on what's happened in the past. That means looking for patterns in stock returns. Last time we talked about using fundamental analysis techniques like Benjamin Graham developed in the 1930s to try to figure out what stocks are trading below their intrinsic value. That's what Benjamin Graham was all about. And by doing that, and finding stocks that were trading below their intrinsic value, we was able to do well by investing in those stocks and waiting for everyone else to realize that the stocks were undervalued. 
But we also talked about how the speed of information flows and the sheer numbers of people using fundamental analysis has made it harder, if not impossible, to actually gain an advantage. I mean, the whole idea of fundamental analysis was to gain an advantage against the other guy. And so when you go into the market as a buyer or a seller, that you know something that the other guy doesn't know. But that was 90 years ago. 90 years ago. And these days, there's probably not a lot that's not known by everybody who will take the time to actually get that information. Well, actually, I would even say because of high frequency trading and things like that, even if you don't know the information that's causing the change to price, whatever it is, it's being traded automatically because of high frequency trading and other AI-like trading platforms. Exactly. Let's approach it this way. First of all, let's talk about the growth of a dollar. And this conversation will lead us into the discussion of factor investing, which is one of the things we wanted to cover today. Well, we're 18 minutes in and now we're finally getting to factors of return. Well, that was a long introduction. (laughs) It was good though. So let's talk about the growth of a dollar. So let's say if you didn't want to take any risk and you had invested 55 years ago, which puts us back to what, about 1970 or so or 65, 55 years ago, you would have invested in US treasury bills and US treasury bills are known as the risk-free rate. So the rate that the US government pays on its short-term treasury bills is risk-free. You know you're going to get your money back. The U.S. government will always pay you back. Unless they fail. Unless they fail. Which is highly unlikely. At this point. So how would that have worked out? So your $1 would have grown to $12 over that time period. That's not bad. 12 times your return. That's right. And that's with taking zero risk. But let's say you were willing to take the risk of the stock markets. And in this case, we'll talk about the S&P 500 just because that's a well-tracked index. Well, your $1 55 years ago would have grown to $208 today. That's better. So 208 is better than 12. Okay. That's why you're the kind of advisor you are. (laughs) I can do math. Yeah. (laughs) This is what we call the equity premium. Okay. So there's a risk premium. There's a risk to investing in stocks compared to treasury bills. And that risk has in the past, in the last 55 years, allowed your $1 to grow to $208. So what if we told you that not all companies are created equal? And when I say equal, it doesn't mean better or worse. It just means different. So when you look at the market as a whole, and let's talk about the whole U.S. market, 3,600 stocks or so, there's large companies, most of which are represented by the major indexes we've talked about, the Dow Jones 30 or the S&P 500. But you can break the rest of them down to mid-sized companies and eventually small companies. And micro even. That's right. right. So what if you took that $1 55 years ago and invested it in small companies over the same 55-year time period? And we said that just in the S&P 500, the largest stocks, that $1 grew to 208 Well, in small companies, that $1 grew to $790. That's a better number. Colin, yep. Looking for your math, your math smarts <laughs> on that one. So that $790, that difference, that massive outperformance of small companies over the large companies is basically what's called the size premium. I want to talk about that just for a real quick second. It's really easy to understand. If you look at two companies, it doesn't matter where they are. One's like a smaller company and one's a large market cap company. Well, a smaller company just has more room to grow. It has room to capture more market share and grow. And that's basically what that size premium is showing you. Exactly. That's the size premium. And the work on the size premium began back in, I believe, in the early 1980s. And since that time, the size premium has been confirmed, not just by other authors who maybe did research on the size premium, but just it's been proven to be the case around the world. So 
that size premium has been seen in all the global stock markets, not just the U.S. market, the Canadian market, the international markets, even emerging markets. You see that size premium, and you might ask, well, why does the size premium exist? And I think there could be many reasons, but one of them you can't ignore is just the whole basis of capitalism, and that is that small companies probably are inherently more risky than investing in large companies. And so for investors to allocate money to a small company that's a riskier company, they expect a higher return. And we're not telling people to allocate money to individual small companies because of Absolutely right. That. It also comes down to something called cost of capital, which is just what does a company have to give up if they're issuing stock or if they're issuing bonds for that matter? What do they have to give up to attract capital? And a smaller company is going to have to offer more. And so the cost of capital to that small company becomes the investor's return. So it makes sense if you just think about it intuitively that small companies should have higher expected returns. And as we saw in that result, that basically has worked out that way. What's the last premium we're going to talk about today? Well, let's talk about price. And what we're talking about price is not the dollars per share of a company, but we're talking about is the price relative to something. So let's say, how is the stock priced relative to its book value? So if you look at what is the company worth when you add up all of the assets and subtract all the liabilities, that's kind of its book value. That's what it's worth. And if you can look at price relative to that, then you're going to get a number. So price to book value might be, let's say it's 20 times. So the stock is trading at 20 times its book value. Well, if you divide up the market as a whole and looked at each individual company and their price to book value that they're all trading at, again, just like size, you're going to get a whole range of companies trading at very high prices relative to their book value, maybe 30 times or more for like high growth technology companies maybe, or things like that. And you could get companies trading down at eight to 10 times their book value. So in market terms, we call those either value companies, which are companies that are trading at low prices on a relative basis, relative to their book values, or high prices, which would be called growth companies. And I think people would be more, I don't know, they're more used to hearing things like price to earnings ratios that show that value versus growth company. So a company that's a big growth company might be like Tesla. It's trading at six or 700 times earnings. Yes, that's right. Company like CIBC is trading at, I think, around 10 times earnings. Eight to 10, I think, yeah. Yeah, so one is considered a growth company and you would invest in it because you expect it to continue on that growth trajectory, whereas the other one might be considered to be just a better value. Exactly. So the value factor was identified and referenced, I believe it was in the late 80s, early 90s, and in a paper by Fama and French that talked about the cross-section of stock returns, and that's where they identified the value premium in addition to the size premium and certainly the premium of investing in stocks relative to bonds. So when we talked about the growth of a dollar, just to recap, a dollar grew to $12 over 55 years in treasury bills. That's the market premium? No, that's the risk-free treasury rate. bills, yeah. It grew to $208 just by being in the market as a whole. That's the market premium. That is. Yeah. <laughs> $790 by being in small companies. Small companies. size premium. premium. What about small companies that had a value tilt? So how did that dollar do? Well, $2,077. $1 grew to $2,077. And so that's the price premium or the value premium, even relative to just small company stocks as a group. So I just want to mention, so these are probably the three most researched and investable factors 
or they certainly were. Now, there's been hundreds and hundreds of factors identified, over 600. But what they find is that when they look at certain factors, they're all just some sort of combination or variation based on the main factors that have already been identified. So I think one of the things we can talk about, and maybe in future episodes, we'll talk about other factors, like there's a momentum factor, which is very real. The stocks that are doing well currently tend to continue that performance for some period of time into the future. But certain academics discount the momentum factor. They say that there's not statistical evidence to support it in the long term. Well, and it may well be that it's more of a behavioral factor than an actual underlying causal factor, such as the risk of buying small companies, something like that. So again, lots of things to talk about, but a lot of people will say, well, I need to pick stocks because I don't want to just get index returns. I want to beat the index. And what the factor research has done is shown that, well, there are factors of expected returns that when you invest and have exposure to those factors, you end up with a higher expected return than the market as a whole. It's not guaranteed. It's just a higher expected return. That's right. And so what it does say, though, is that if you had a choice of investing only in large companies, let's call them, like the S&P 500 companies, and your $1 grew to $208, and there was a chance to expose your portfolio to a group of stocks that grew to 2077, almost 10 times the amount, would you not want exposure to that? Well, I would. Well, I think so. And I think most people would. To sum up, there are factors of return. They're not generally based on specific stock analysis or maybe even technical trading. They're really based on evidence-based research that shows that certain types of stocks can perform better. And many products and many funds are now offering ways to get exposure to those factors. They're marketing it like it's new, right? Like I see all these ETFs coming out that are factor-based or something like that. Factor- Smart beta. Smart beta. It all boils down to the work that was done by Eugene Fama and Ken French as the pioneers in that area, really, with the Fama French factor models. That's right. And unfortunately, a lot of those 600 factors or more that have been identified, in fact, there's an ex-University of Chicago professor, John Cochran, who has written numerous papers about what he calls the factor zoo, just that there are so many factors that you have to spend a lot of time and research to weed through them. But unfortunately, a lot of companies will use those as ways to market and sell products. Exactly. And I think that's where we need to make sure that we're investing in a way that gives us exposure to what we know to be factors that have been proven to be pervasive and persistent and as well just kind of make sense. I want to sum up here just the last three episodes. We talked about in the first episode, asset allocation being your most important decision, really. Secondly, diversification, so spread the risk. How stock picking is fairly futile. It can be done, but it's pretty hard to do. Market timing, same thing as very difficult. Yep. But that if you have a portfolio where you've already identified the proper asset allocation for yourself, you've diversified your positions, and you've included these factors of return, you probably have given yourself a better opportunity of doing well. You're just playing the odds. You're just putting yourself in the best possible position to benefit from these things. Well, that was good. Maybe we'll end it there. But next episode, we're going to get into know your costs. So that's fees, expenses, taxes, things of that nature. That should be a riveting conversation. Well, (laughs) it should be. But I mean, those are your silent partners in investing. So they're sharing your returns. 
And so I think we're going to talk about that. And things are going to cost. There will be costs associated with investing, but making sure the costs are reasonable and right. And so we'll cover that off. Sounds good. All right. Until next time. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2021.